Welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm your host today for Tuesday Talks with Ludarian Gillette. We're excited to be y'all uh, for another amazing conversation. Um, be before we kick off, we just want to take a moment um, to give our thoughts and our honor to the folks in Haiti and also the folks in Afghanistan. Uh, certainly been a uh, top of mind for me and I imagine so many others. Um, CARE has the, uh, the, the mandate and the opportunity to be in service to folks uh, all over the world. And so I would encourage you to visit our website, visit uh, our social media handles, where you might learn more about the way we're responding in both places and find ways that you can be involved uh, in helping to support community members all over the world as they navigate these uncertain times. Um, that said, we'll get into a Tuesday talk today that uh, has some threads that, that are relevant and impact uh, the, the topic of the day, especially around folks who are able to access stable, safe, and reliable housing. So let me introduce you to the platform and we'll get right into it. Uh, the CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space programs and support systems that connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. We actually highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of colors. Still, we're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. International human rights law recognizes a right to adequate housing. The International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights upholds the right of everyone to an adequate standard of living for themselves and their families, including adequate food, clothing, and housing, and to the continuous improvement of living conditions. Although this concept is ingrained in the highest form of law around the world, uh, we're seeing communities still struggle to achieve this very basic human right, and in some cases, difficulty maintaining their cultures and identities within communities that they call home. In urban areas, as rents and cost of living increases, individuals and families are finding it difficult to stay in homes that they may have been in for entire, their entire life or for many generations. And meanwhile, shifting trends in rural settings are also driving migration and displacements in many parts of the world. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the current state of housing access and land rights and how our panelists are creating spaces for solutions that deliver communities where everyone can survive and thrive. So let me introduce you to our great lineup of speakers today. First, I want you to meet Joan Vernon. Joan is a tenure resident of the English Avenue neighborhood and a community engagement specialist for Atlanta's West Side communities. Joan has led the efforts to implement the new zoning for the West Side Land Use Framework and the West Side Future Fund Quality Affordable Housing Program, Home on the West Side. Joan, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Next, I'll introduce you to Jupiter Peraza. Jupiter is a trans woman, activist, and DACA recipient. Through her work at the Transgender District as Director of Social Justice and Empowerment Initiatives, Jupiter's focus is to shed light on the plight for trans liberation and immigrant issues. Community-driven and cause-led, Jupiter hopes to transform the way we organize to be more inclusive, impactful, and revolutionary. Jupiter, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. 
Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And next, I want you to meet Dr. Lois Liao. Dr. Liao is a fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's interested in combining economics, sociology, and psychology to understand housing preferences and marginalized groups' living experiences. Her recent project includes Mind for Housing website, aiming to bring the voice of social housing tenants into housing research. Dr. Liao, welcome. Awesome. So Oh, it looks like we may have lost Ryan for a second. So while we let him jump back in, we can start the questions. Is everybody fine with that? We'll give him a second. Perfect. All right, so we love to start the, the conversation out with a question for all of our speakers, just to kind of ground us in the communities that you all work in. So can you all talk to us about the communities you call home and the communities that you advocate for? And let's maybe start with um, Dr. Liao and then Joan and then Jupiter. Sure, um, thanks for the question. Um, so although British academics are hardly involved in um, activism, um, I certainly have a preference in terms of the topics of research. So, so far my research has been on uh, the marginalized groups of people, including the ethnic minorities, um, people living in public housing, um, as well as I also have a very strong interest of um, what housing means to, to women and to the immigrants. Um, so, um, I personally haven't advocated for anything, but I believe this is something I really feel really, really strong for. Thank you for that. And Joan, what about you? Hi, everyone. My name is Joan Vernon, and I'm an advocate for the West Side community of Atlanta. Um, the West Side community is the cradle of the civil rights movement for Atlanta. It's got a long, rich history of some very important first, um, like Maynard Jackson, who was the first African-American mayor of Atlanta, as well as Alonzo Herndon, who was the first African-American millionaire. Um, and obviously, you know, well, not obviously, but as some of you might know, Martin Luther King also as a West Sider. So there's a rich history there of civil rights, um, like most Southern cities or several Southern cities, it's divided by a railroad track, which um, in its day separated the whites from the blacks. And since then has become a completely, you know, African-American community, about 90, we'll say 90%, 98% African-American. Uh, back in the day, at its heyday, it was about 50,000 people there. And today there's about 15,000. And that is the result of a lot of disinvestment, uh, some redlining, and of course, some systematic oppression. Uh, so at this point, the West Side is the one of the longest standing neighborhoods. It's actually the last standing single family neighborhood in Atlanta that is adjacent to the downtown area that is not considered gentrified. Um, well, at this point, things are changing because of the demand of the location. And you're starting to see that richness of the leadership, um, the rich culture, and the need for historic preservation as these large developments come into the community. Thank you for that, Joan. And we'll get into some more specifics, I think, later in the conversation, but excited for you to share some more on what's happening here in Atlanta. Jupiter, what about you? What communities do you call home and who are you advocating for? Um, so the communities that I call home, I definitely have um, a variety of intersecting communities. One of them 
that I represent proudly is that I am undocumented. Um, I came to the United States when I was a child and I am now a DACA recipient. Um, I don't know if many of you folks have heard about DACA um, and how contentious it's become, um, <clears throat> but something that I always try to represent is the undocumented community, uh, just because of our diaspora, how much we contribute to this country. Um, so that is at the forefront of who I am and who I am, um, am advocating for. I, of course, also advocate for the transgender community. Um, working for the transgender district, which is the first of its kind, I get to um, work very closely with community members that um, are being affected by many of the issues happening in San Francisco. So those two communities um, um, are my home. It's they're, 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 what, they're, they're what draws me and they are what pulls my advocacy. Um, and of course, uh, when you mix both, um, of course, I am even more passionate about undocumented uh, trans people. So that's just a little bit of um, where I call home and who I identify with. Awesome. And thank, thanks, everyone. I had a bit of a technical glitch there, but I'm back and we're ready to roll. Um, Dr. L Let's let's start with you. Um, I would love it if you could frame up for us from a global perspective some of the broad challenges you see individuals and families facing uh, when it comes to accessing adequate and safe housing. And how might we think of this in different pockets and different contexts? Thanks, Ryan, for the question. Um, so, of course, my answer will be a quite reduced form of what the academic research has said. But I would like everyone to imagine a pyramid. So at the bottom level, the first level, we have the supply issue, which is very prevalent in a number of global cities such as London or New York. So take UK as an example. So in 2019, there is a housing demand of 345,000 units, but we only built 244,000 units, which means there was a gap of 100,000 units um, in the market. So why is there a supply issue? There could be a number of reasons. It could be geographical restrictions. For example, in Hong Kong, um, the city is very hilly, which means a lot of areas are not suitable to build as um, residential areas. It could also be strict land use and housing use regulations. So in UK, we have something called Green Belt, which means certain areas in the city are designated areas for uh, greeneries and you can't turn them into residential areas. Um, but it could also be a conflict of interest between those who benefit from high housing prices and those who need to access housing. As we know from demand supply, housing is a commodity and the more supply you have, the, the lower price there will be, which will be against the interest of those who benefit from increasing housing price, could it be existing housing owners, real estate developers or uh, investors. So this is foundation. Then moving to the second level, uh, we can always talk about the designs and regulations of safety. Um, this is especially prevalent for people living in a low budget built uh, housing, for example, public housing, in the UK called social housing. We have to always balance between um, energy efficiency, fire safety, um, the cost and benefits of things. And then we'll, let's focus on the third level, which is something that not many people talk about. So when we talk about adequate and safety access of housing, we tend to think about the, the material things. Okay, if you give someone a house unit, they will be happy and that's the end of it. But we also, we also need to think about 
how they psychologically feel living in the housing. Do they feel safe and do they feel of equals? So in countries with high home ownership culture, people living in public housing may feel stigmatized because home ownership may segment the people into the losers and winners of the system. And those have to depend on the government for support to maybe regarded as the losers of the system. Um, so, so here, which means even, even if we provide the adequate housing and we got the regulations of the uh, designs and stuff, they may still not feel safe living in the property. So think about the pyramid, supply, design, and culture. That is a perfect illustration and a perfect place for us to start, um, because I think I think what we'll look through the conversation is how each of you are addressing housing and the housing crisis across all three levels of the pyramid. So, Joan, let, let's get your perspective here, because with your work in the community and being on the very front lines, um, very much fits kind of this framework of that pyramid. Can you share with us a bit about that grassroots front advocacy thinks about supply, thinks about design, thinks about culture, and the ways that you're working to preserve, particularly the culture of Atlanta's historic West. Great question. Um, actually, that was a, a the pyramid was a great analogy. I actually use the pyramid analogy too, uh, but it's set up a, a bit differently. Um, so we look at it in terms of an uh, inverted pyramid, where you'll have, um, you know, one portion of the pyramid is the social class of the people in the community. And several communities of color, especially those that are disadvantaged and have their challenges, people tend to generalize that the entire population is one way, which we face a lot on the West Side community because of donors coming in, over-surveying the community, and then using that data to get grants and money to do programs. And then the programs end up being ineffective or um, temporary and don't really address the real systematic issues that need to be addressed. So our pyramid or the pyramid that I've been promoting is one to show the diversity of the community. So allowing for the, the bottom, I hate to say the bottom of the pyramid in that way, but for that bottom tier, to be a catch-all basin for those that need the inspiration, that need the hope. Um, a lot of times they need second chance programs. They need um, housing that's going to be open to, you know, a nonviolent criminal past. Um, and they need really to have a self-esteem reassured. And then that middle tier is a tier that is a group of people who are um, essentially working. They're, they're surviving. They're making things happen for themselves. They're working class people. They are aspiring entrepreneurs and, and local business owners and people that uh, will inspire the class that is looking above to see, you know, well, where is the hope? Um, and then there's the tier that's above that, that is affluent, that is uh, usually newly arriving in the community, um, but in communities where there is a, a large population of growth um, and diversity, we're seeing single family homes right next to a large development. Um, so sometimes a single family home at a pitch of 45 feet next to a development that's you know, 60, 70, 80 feet in the air. And so there's those quality of life issues as well as what that does to the supply and the demand of housing when you're putting these new establishments next door to houses that are like 
50 and 60 and sometimes 100 years old. Um, so what we've done at Westside Future Fund is one of the first things Westside Future Fund did. At the time, I was the president of the neighborhood. So I was meeting the organization with a little bit of chip on my shoulder. And they were commissioned by the city to do a the framework plan, which was a zoning document that would allow us to drive the future developments of the community. Like I said, this community has not been gentrified, it hasn't been developed in. Um, and these plans have been something the community wanted but couldn't get past the legislation. Um, and through that plan, we were able to work with the community for, you know, I as a leader and then eventually being hired to implement the plan to um, get it codified through legislation and have a design template that we can now advocate for and fight for. So now there's a transitional height requirement, which is a standard in the city of Atlanta and for a lot of large cities, but it allows for those developers who want to build a 90 story building next to your single family home to regulate it as a transition. So you're not just smashed against this large building and it increases your property value, or at least it allows for you to have a little bit of comfort that this new development is next to you. So that land use framework plan tool and having a guideline or a basin for how future developments would now impact the community is a strong tool that we try not to weaponize as community members, but to allow developers to respect and use in all their implementation. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm familiar with what you all have done. I'm a huge fan and, and, and supporter of, of the way that you all have approached it uh, in Atlanta, particularly. And I think there are many elements of, of this work that can be applied in other contexts around the world. And so, Jupiter, one of the things that I think is quite impressive and quite um, um, critical to the ethos of Westside Future Fund, my observation, is around preserving culture and creating communities where individuals and families uh, can feel fully available to demonstrate and to practice their culture. I wonder what you think about ways that uh, we, we should be doing that and why is it such a critical part of building safe, stable communities? Yeah, thank you, Ryan, for that question. And also thank you, Joan, for, for that. I was just in Atlanta a few weeks ago um, where we were also exploring how to maintain uh, culture, uh, especially in some um, LGBT locations, um, like the Eagle Bar that's now closed, you know? Um, but, you know, for us at the Transgender District, definitely culture is a pillar. It's one of our seven mandates to make sure that we have cultural competency and to make sure that we are preserving cultural heritage. You know, culture derives from historical structures and whatever it is that a certain group, uh, a certain marginalized community is experiencing through those historical um, through those historical st structures, it kind of, it sort of seeps into the culture that you are fostering with other community members. Um, and that is something that we saw in the Tenderloin neighborhood, which is where the transgender district is. The Tenderloin houses, um, it's, it's the most dense location um, of trans people in the entire United States. Um, and in this community, you see, um, you know, certain customs and language and, you know, relationships being built that is so important and so critical to San Francisco. Um, and you know, with the forces of gentrification that are ravaging the city, um, it's it's incredibly difficult and it's incredibly challenging to preserve that culture that I think is so special and makes San Francisco San Francisco. Um, you know, 
like, for example, in New York City at the beginning of the 70s, the, there were so many artists that decorated, you know, the peninsula. Um, and as it got more expensive to live, it, of course, became something um, that it was not. Um, you saw artists being driven out um, and, you know, a new community sort of starting to take place. And it's sort of what's happening in San Francisco as well. Um, San Francisco has so much rich um, history, but unfortunately with the rise of um, the cost of living in San Francisco, you need um, more than three jobs to be able to maintain a two bedroom apartment for um, just one family. Um, and that alone is alarming because that is in the entire Bay Area. Um, but you know, there's also this other counterculture, which is the counterculture of Silicon Valley. Um, and you see hordes of young people coming to work in the Bay. Um, they're working in tech and they're working, you know, at Apple, Microsoft, you know, so you see sort of this counterculture take over uh, a culture uh, that, you know, people aren't really defending, people aren't really protecting. Um, so, you know, that is something that is very, um, it resonates so much with San Francisco and not, and not just with the transgender community, but with other communities as well. And something that the transgender district is trying to do, uh, for example, we launched a housing subsidy program in which we are helping trans people stay in the neighborhoods where they have been for decades. Um, and, you know, that is a way that we are maintaining that culture. Um, it's also through educational initiatives, which is really important to invest in because, you know, in a city of transplants like San Francisco, it's very easy to forget what was there before somebody got there. Um, as, a trans, as a transplant myself from LA, um, it, 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 it really took a lot to learn about the history and the culture of the spaces that I was occupying. Um, and, you know, we, we often forget that. Um, so for us, it's very important to do those educational initiatives, but also do those financial um, initiatives that help, you know, um, our communities stay in neighborhoods where they've been all their lives and stay in neighborhoods that I think um, make San Francisco what it is. Yes, I um, I'm 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 actually dialing in from Los Angeles today, um, but spent a lot of time up in the Bay Area uh, last year, and have family and friends up that way, and have truly seen everything that you just described. It's like these these forces of the economy in certain sectors of the economy doing quite well, but the impacts that it's having on folks who maybe aren't tapped into those resources or who aren't participating in those marketplaces. It's a challenge that I think. We're certainly seeing it in urban areas all over the US, um, but mm -hmm. I know that those forces have their kind of impact on folks all around the world. And Dr. Liao, um, could you give us a bit of context around how this is showing up, particularly for folks who are now depending on public housing or government assistance and looking to find and maintain stable housing while the global markets kind of do what they do and move very rapidly sometimes to their exclusion? Yeah, this is, uh, so I'm currently doing a research on uh, gentrification. Um, I think this is something that's not only happening in the UK, but also everywhere in 
in places that money um, money flows. Um, it has definitely been a challenge for those, uh, especially in, in London, who used to live in urban areas, which used to be uh, very diversified, diver diverse in terms of ethnic minorities and um, in terms of income levels. But now they have to be pushed out from these areas that they've been called home for 20 years. Um, and what the government provides currently is not a like-to-like -like replacement. So they may have to move to somewhere which is probably 50 miles away from uh, where they originally from. Um, and what I want to emphasize is that in countries with strong home ownership culture, the policies doesn't necessarily protect the people who don't have access to housing. Um, so in the example of UK, policies tend to promote home ownership rather than think about improving the stocks and the quality of public housing. Um, so this is not just the, the social culture which shapes the stigmatiz uh, stigmatization, but also the institutional aspects of it also facilitates, also amplifies um, this issue. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, again, to the work, Joan, that you described in Atlanta, um, we see some very clear illustrations of that. I wonder, Joan, how are you all thinking about um, navigating kind of the complex group of stakeholders that might exist? So you have legacy residents, you have policymakers and, and local decision makers, but you also have investors, you have developers, and each of them have a different piece of the puzzle and sometimes conflicting uh, motivations. So what, how are you all brokering uh, those kind of agreements and how are you thinking about maintaining a rich mosaic uh, uh, so that everyone feels a part of the community? That's like the million dollar question, Ryan. I mean, honestly, that is, that is the challenge. Um, that's a that's a that's a very loaded question. But so, I mean, I just have to say it's 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 complicated. You know, um, definitely a lot of personalities, a lot of agendas, a lot of um, you you didn't even add political, um, but the political agenda. I mean, it's that's a complex question. Um, I would say that was probably why I think that the Westside Future Fund hired me on. I'm the first community member to be hired onto the team. And I came in, they kind of get, you know, made this title um, for someone to come in from the community and kind of lead in those efforts. Uh, what I think was significant about the work that I was doing as a volunteer um, originally um, as the president of the neighborhood was, you know, I came in with a lot of controversy. I'll have to admit, you know, these types of neighborhoods like deep civil rights, uh, they, they weren't extremely welcoming to me in the beginning. Um, now they will ride or die for me. But you know, in the beginning, it was definitely hard to get the old generation, I guess you'd say, or the old leadership to accept all of these new developers. But what I think was the key or what I know was the key was the education behind it. Um, so originally the meetings were held in you know, churches. Uh, so the first, one of the first things I did as a president was to move the meetings into a business office um, to host them with presentations, to wear a suit or, you know, dress professional for the meetings and to bring out the people in the city that were really making decisions on behalf of the community. And we would have very candid conversations and it would allow for that distrust to break down. So, you know, a lot of times when people are, you know, um, 
belligerent and just giving a lot of resistance, there is a fear there. And so addressing the fear of what is happening was very, very important. So the first thing we did was address the fear. Um, and by addressing the fear, residents were able to ask questions that they didn't feel stupid about. And I would prep developers before they came in. I would meet with them ahead of time. I'd see their development projects. I was taking it very, very serious. And then I would say to them, okay, well, you're gonna need to be transparent about your numbers if you're using subsidy. Um, there's a lot of nuances and rules if you're looking and watching the politics of how these development deals happen, you'll start to understand that there's a lot of money changing hands. And it takes a lot of research to figure out how are people accessing these subsidies? How is the capital stack? How are these business deals structured? Now I would do that, but I would also have the trust of the developers and say, you know, be transparent with me and we're going to regurgitate this back in a way that the community can understand it and then figure out how you can have some, some trade-off there. Um, so the education was extremely important. Have, not being afraid to approach um, sensitive topics, uh, not running from the racial tension that is clearly in the room, you know, um, just being very open and honest and having a conversation where we're saying, hey, we understand you're a new neighbor because you own and have bought into this community, but we want you to understand that we're existing residents and we have a real love for this community and it is not a profit margin for us. This is not about an ROI. This is about, you know, having generational wealth for our family. And they were, there were some really heavy conversations, some powerful conversations that came out of that dialogue. And since then, the community has transitioned into actually listening to developments and um, having the education of knowing how to combat certain things or say, you know, questions like, well, how much subsidy are you using? Do you have a lure? Is your lure going to be 15 to 20 years? Do you, um, you know, how much affordable, how many, how many local businesses are you going to hire in this establishment? So bringing the education to it is what really broke that down. And then when I went over to Westside Future Fund, everything that they wanted to do and were aspiring to do the whole mission, the vision, because you know, I wasn't, I was not quick to take a job from a community advocate to working for the man, you know, but this was different. You know, when I researched and really got deep into what Westside Future Fund was doing, there's nothing like it anywhere in the country. And people call us from all over the world and say, how are you implementing this model? Um, how are you guys creating this kind of equity for the existing population and for the indigenous community? And the big part of that is those conversations. So Westside Future Fund, you know, always We've just recently moved into a new building, but every location has a huge space for community gatherings um, and making sure that those relationships happen at its very core and that we're not afraid to have tough conversations. So that's really the key, breaking down those tough conversations and making sure we're educating people on their fears. Absolutely. And I've part of some of those conversations and I understand exactly the the tension that you're describing in the portrait that you're painting here. Um, in a lot of instances, I, I can recall feeling like there wasn't a perfect answer or a perfect solution. And I think navigating that uh, becomes quite tricky and quite challenging, especially around something um, as personal and as rich as community and housing. And so Jupiter, I wanna introduce or get your perspective on a topic that you alluded to in your intro and, and when you talked about the communities that you call home, and that's around migration and immigration in its various forms and how that impacts access to housing or even access to public uh, services and resources. 
Can you share with us a bit um, some of the complexities that we might see, certainly speak to the US context, but you can speak beyond that, uh, to individuals and families that are immigrating or that are migrating, uh, some legally, some illegally, some documented, undocumented, all these different types of uh, migrant move. How does that impact access to housing and what are some of your perspectives on the ways we should frame uh, this very contentious debate? Uh, you know, the topic about migration and immigration has been a very contentious topic, especially in the U.S. and over the last, what, five to six years, um, especially with the Trump administration, we saw a lot of hostility and a lot of folks were being demonized for, you know, migrating is a human right. Uh, you are able and you are free to move wherever you would like to move. But of course, there, you know, there's a bigger conversation, a more profound conversation revolving around borders and you know, all of that. But um, something that, um, a conversation topic that really gets used in that, in that dialogue is that when you have migration, you have a shortage people taking jobs, you know, people taking, you know, housing opportunities and all those things. Um, but I do believe that, you know, we, we place trust in our government, whether it's local, state, or national. Um, and I am, a, I am a firm believer that we, you know, we should get the resources that we are asking for. Um, I am, a believer that a government should react to the needs of the people. Um, but of course, uh, I think uh, Joan alluded to this earlier in the conversation, there's always a political agenda behind everything that it's done. Um, and most often that political agenda overshadows the needs of you know, marginalized communities. Um, for example, you know, people of color face monumental disparity here in San Francisco. And it's not just something that's specific to San Francisco, but it's something that we can see in other parts of the United States. But when you have this disparity and we are not seeing our government react in providing those resources, then you, you, you really get to see where priorities lie. Um, something that we've had issues on this side is that you know, we've, we've petitioned and we requested uh, more access to resources in order to provide housing um, for folks that do not have housing. You know, something that I realized working in San Francisco and working in housing um, over the last year is that um, resources for emergency housing are so scarce. They're, they, they are, they're, they, there are virtually no emergency housing resources, especially for the trans community. Um, and I think that is a huge problem. It's a huge loophole and that is how people fall into um, homelessness. Uh, something that I wanted to mention um, is that where the, where the transgender district is located in the Tenderloin, um, that is where you have um, the most uh, homeless population 
but also it is the neighborhood where there are more millionaires in all of San Francisco, all in one neighborhood. There's so much wealth disparity. Um, and it's ridiculous to know that in that same neighborhood, there are millionaires and billionaires, yet there are folks living on the sidewalk on a tent. So, you know, something, um, something that we're also seeing in San Francisco is that we are seeing a pushback against um, affordable housing. And the reason why we're seeing this pushback um, as I've taken a step back and thought about it is that affordable housing is synonymous with crime. It's synonymous with, you know, robberies and, you know, all that you know, negative connotations, um, which I think it's very dangerous and it's very alarming because when you, when you place um, affordable housing with certain communities of color that are, you know, demonized in the media, um, then you are, you're limiting the possibilities of doing affordable housing. And when you limit the possibilities of doing affordable housing, then where can you do affordable housing? Um, yeah, and, sorry, go ahead, please. Uh, no, and I, you know, I just, I just wanted to mention that over the, um, during the pandemic, San Francisco started various initiatives and programs to get um, homeless people into hotel rooms um, in order to have them there, but, um, throughout the pandemic, hotel rooms were still vacant. They were still empty and people were still on the street. Um, so then you begin to ask about bureaucracy, how effective it, um, it is, where's the implementation? Why isn't it working properly? Um, you know, which takes me back to the point that I made about our government um, and how effective it is and how quick it is responding to the needs that we are, you know, that we have. Um, so, you know, that is just, that's, that's something that's becoming fairly common, uh, especially as we are learning how to advocate uh, for housing and more um, affordable housing and access to housing, um, equitable housing, because, you know, it is scarce and there are many, um, luxury apartments in San Francisco that are empty and that have been empty for the last two to three years. Um, you know, so I, I just wanted to, to shed light on how um, the scarcity in the situation of where you are when it comes to housing um, is contingent of the politics of your location. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of that gets at uh, some of what Dr. Liao uh, kind of led with, with the um, the misaligned maybe incentives when you look at the supply piece of the pyramid and how the marketplace, in some instances, um, you know, there are folks who benefit from scarcity and there are folks who bear the full kind of weight of scarcity. And this is something that we certainly have to resolve in many different contexts. I wonder, Dr. Liao, we, we've talked a lot about how this looks and shows up in the context. How might we think of access to quality, reliable, sustainable housing in rural parts of our global community? And what are some of the challenges that be unique to those communities? Mm. Thanks for the question, Ryan. Um, what I would 
advocate here is um, think about alternative ways of living. Um, so owning a home is not the only way that you can uh, set up a family or have a place to live. There are alternative ways you can you can rent, you can have self-filled, for example. Um, and in in the case of UK, uh, we can learn from the European countries where actually most people rent in, um, there's a large rental market in Germany and Netherlands. Hence, the protection for tenants are a lot better than the ones in, uh, in the UK. And we can also think more creatively of um, issues regarding property ownership and ownership of things. And this brings to a high level of thinking of self-reflection of the entire capitalism system because capital doesn't have morals. They, doesn't, they flow to where profits can be made. It doesn't, it doesn't bear that morality of helping people or saving people from homelessness. Um, so as individuals in the system, we do have that responsibility of asking ourselves uh, what kind of role we are playing in, um, in this system. Yeah, and that you're opening up a bigger topic for us to get into. Um, so Ladarian, I want to pass it over to you uh, to, to introduce some of the uh, questions that may have come from the audience. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, I'm definitely over here making notes that we need to have a conversation on homelessness as a, as a part two to this. I think it's definitely a good follow-up conversation. But um, for the panelists, curious to know what lasting impacts you think the pandemic will have on the transformation of communities and neighborhood. I know we talked a little bit today about um, skyscrapers still going up, buildings still happening, but communities still coming together um, to try to transform their neighborhoods. Now, we're seeing a lot of people from, I'm speaking for Atlanta in particular, people from California, from New York, relocating to Atlanta, right? To cheaper places to live um, because of the pandemic, because they work remotely now. So I'm curious to know how you all think the pandemic will impact communities and what they'll look like in the future. And maybe let's start with Joan and then we'll go with Dr. Liao and then we'll hear from Jupiter last. Good question. Um, so I'll start with what I see happening and then what I think will happen. Um, so what I'm seeing happening, um, so now I work a lot more with developers um, than originally when I was a community leader um, on the neighborhood association level. And there are a lot more developers in the community. Um, you've seen the rise of the high rise, okay? Um, which now their performers are different. They're being adjusted. Their phasing is different. So when originally they might've approached a development, clearing the land, uh, I'm not sure if you guys know how like a developer will do a phased development. So they'll start the development off by getting the zoning to go extremely high. And then they'll build something small that is almost a temporary installation until the market can bear something bigger. So what we're seeing now is some of those developments are either downsizing what was proposed originally in their plan or for their funding, or they're already too far down the line and they're you know subsidizing or decreasing the amount of what they originally had placed in their performance, their ROI. So on that end, you're seeing large developments that were, I mean, we were clearing so many zonings for like 300 you know, unit buildings. And now though that power that they once had is, is compromised. And then on the other hand, I work very closely with a, a single home builder. Um, now their price points are in the 700s, but when they originally came into the market, maybe at a 599, so about $600,000 for a townhome or a large home, a single family home. Those homes are now 
almost hitting a million dollars because more people are desiring to have a home. So what you're seeing is a shift where before the single family home builders had positioned the market at a certain price point. And now post COVID or you know, actively in COVID really, they're seeing higher margins and the price of steel, lumber and construction has dramatically increased. So there's this really big imbalance happening between the types of developers you see. What I believe will happen, um, because I also really, my favorite thing is to do is to travel. I love to travel and I love looking at developments and properties. I would go somewhere just to look at the development, the architecture, how they did their capital stack, and really just trying to understand how these things are financed. What I'm seeing is a lot more people moving to rural areas. So I think there's going to be a large shift and depopulation of major cities and that you'll see a larger increase happening in rural areas. Um, and then I wanted to point out too, that's what I think is gonna happen. I wanted to point out too, another model for home ownership that we don't talk about is land trust models, um, which are now, you know, I'm on the board for the Atlanta Land Trust. That's a model that before people might not have looked at as closely as they're looking at now, but it's allowing for affordability to happen at these single family home levels that wasn't there before. And even their margins are increasing because there's a, a, a bigger need for the single family home. But I do think that big cities are gonna depopulate and we'll start to see more action in rural areas. I agree, Joan. I think that's an interesting point of view too. Um, Jupiter, I wanna pass this question over to you because Dr. Liao, I actually have a different question for you that kind of um, coincides with something you said earlier about capitalism. So Jupiter, um, what are your thoughts here? Um, in my opinion, the lasting impacts that the pandemic will have on communities and neighborhood and neighborhoods is definitely the fabric of who makes those uh, of the people that make up those communities in those neighborhoods. Um, I mentioned earlier that San Francisco is a city of transplants. Many people have moved to San Francisco. Um, and, you know, certain communities and neighborhoods have been established. Um, and we also saw that through the ownership of, you know, certain businesses. Uh, you know, you saw, you know, dance clubs and coffee shops and restaurants and, you know, many small businesses um, being propped up and sustaining the community. And something that we saw with the pandemic is that many of these businesses um, closed down. And many of the people that were uh, pillars in communities were moving away. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're sort of breaking down um, and taking away um, core components of what makes a community a community. Um, and even as, you know, even in this last year, we, um, we saw many holes being opened up in our communities in terms of, um, you know, in terms of stakeholders. Um, and that is something that we are going to feel for years to come. Um, not having people to turn to or not having um, voices in communities that uh, can point or can recall history, um, certain occasions and events and instances, that is something that we're losing. Um, it is something that we're not going to be able to hold for us, um, especially for uh, you know, marginalized 
communities like the transgender like the transgender community um, not having um, an elder um, in the neighborhood that we've always known them to be at is going to be a loss, um, a loss for our community and our loss for future generations um, that will not get to know um, how critical that individual or those spaces um, were. Thank you for that, Jupiter. And, and I agree on that point as well. I think neighborhoods transform so, so rapidly, right? And you can no longer go to the candy store on the corner or go knock on your neighbor's door anymore. And it, it definitely is something we should think about, I think, when development comes into play. Um, Dr. Liao, I have one separate question for you that came in from one of our audience members. Um, he's interested to know the problem that we're seeing right now with real estate um, and access to housing. Do you think the problem is with uh, the real estate system itself or just individuals who are making it to the top and just becoming greedy or selfish and not really thinking about um, communities at the bottom or keeping neighborhoods the same or sustainable? Um, I, I tend to think um, we probably will have good nature, good intention. Um, I don't believe anyone, anyone, no matter how greedy it seems on paper, uh, would want to do something uh, just just for the sake of bad intention. So I would think um, if we just follow the, the rationale of capital profit making, we will naturally end up having people in the street um, because because there, as I said earlier, there is a divide of losers and winners of this game. And some people have to bear that, that, uh, that burden of that scarcity as Ryan uh, said earlier. Um, so I think to address this issue, we need to think about incentives. How can we have different incentives for, for developers, for the profit makers, and make them more aligned with the people that need the access of adequate housing? I love it. Thank you, Dr. Liao. And, and we're definitely going to need, I think, a part two to this conversation, Ryan, just giving you a heads up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm learning so much here. I agree. We've got to bring uh, bring this topic back up. Um, so we're we're running short on time here. Such a rich and, and insightful discussion. Thank you all again uh, for being with us. So the last question that we ask our speakers is, tell us one thing that you're doing to create joy or something that you're experiencing that's bringing you joy lately. Um, let's hear from Joan, Dr. Liao, and we'll get our last word today from Jupiter. Awesome question. Uh, ended on a, a good note, right? Um, I probably, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that we're doing that bring joy, but I would probably pivot to the Home on the West Side program. Um, so West Home on the West Side program is a signature program from West Side Future Fund. And West Side Future Fund, you know, is a revitalization fund for the community. And it's leading through creating housing, uh, mixed use housing. Uh, so the, the organization has acquired several parcels of land and they're redeveloping this land to sell it back to the indigenous population. So you'd say, okay, so how do you preference that? How do you make that work? Uh, well, throughout the application process, you start the application off with a really brief um, you know, application. You can actually 
do it from your cell phone and it asks you certain questions. You know, how long have you been on the West side? Do you work on the West side? Do your, your kids attend the schools on the West side? What are your ties to the West side? And as you're filling out the application, it's almost ranking your um, connections to the community. And so when that batches into a, a system, it puts the people who have uh, the most ties and who have the longest standing relationships with the community and a list that will go out as a priority or a first look. So this is allowing people who want to buy homes to now buy them as, you know, and not have to com compete with the market. So that's one way you're doing it. The second thing is now there are people that, you know, you start to look at the, the economics of the community, they still can't afford the type of homes that are in that, you know, the, the price points. Um, so with that, along with Invest Atlanta and Atlanta Housing, uh, Westside Future Fund is coupled philanthropic dollars towards allowing for a you know, down payment assistance. So the down payment assistance now adds to that. So when the house is about 200 and, well, you know, $300,000 home, you're able to get that with up to $90,000 of down payment assistance. So now you don't even have to qualify for the loan of what the house really cost, you can get that bought down. And then that amortizes over a few years. So it is absolutely allowing people to enter homes that never would have been able to afford homes and come into the home with equity. That brings me the most joy. I love that. Uh, I personally benefited from a program like that back in my 20s. And it's certainly it's like it's life shifting and generation changing to be able to have access. Um, Dr. Liao, what about you? What's bringing you joy these days? Um, I started walking around where I live during the pandemic and realized a lot of wild areas, um, which are very nice as it is which made me think how, how humans and us, myself, have affected our environments, uh, our living space, uh, and how simple joy can, life can actually be, um, just breathing, walking, and there's not much complexity to it. So this is my uh, recent joy, slow down and walk. <laughs> That's a good one. We, we hear that quite a bit. It's always a reminder to me to slow down and walk and breathe and take in the fresh air. So I'll make sure I get my steps in today. Um, Jupiter, last word from you. What's bringing you joy these days? Um, something that has been bringing me joy as of late is definitely connecting with my community. Um, more, I was talking to this constituent last week. She's currently, um, her house burned down. Um, and her house was sort of like a center for many people in the community. Um, and her not having that home is a huge loss for her. Um, but as I was talking to her and what she was telling me um, of, you know, of despite her going through something so, so, so traumatizing um, and, you know, something that is a huge loss, she still continues to feel hopeful and resilient. Um, she still sees the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and that brings me joy because I see how tenacious my community is and how resilient they are. Um, and despite everything that is going on, um, we are able to find joy in everyday life. Um, and that is something that we always try to advocate, especially for the trans community. There's this misconception that, you know, Every day is a struggle, um, a setback, um, 
for anybody who is trans, but something that we forget to talk about is um, the joy, um, the beauty um, of being ourselves and also living our freedom um, and being fully expressive. So that is what brings me joy, knowing that um, there are people in my community that continue to look ahead and continue to look forward. And, we, and when we maintain that mindset, we are, you know, we are setting ourselves to unleash our potential, um, and, but also passing down that knowledge and that mentality to younger people is a huge inspiration and a very important foundation um, for us to know that the future is limitless. There is not a glass ceiling. Um, and if we can get over everything that stands in our way, um, we'll be able to do as much as we want to do. I love that. Cheers to the limitless nature of our future. Um, this is the end of our time today. For those who are on the call who are able to unmute, turn your cameras on, please do so. Join me in giving a round of applause and appreciate our amazing speakers today. Thank you so much, Ryan, and the diary for organizing as well. And DJ Sofa. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, everyone. So for those who want to stick around for a few extra minutes, DJ Sofa is going to carry us off with a great set. Another amazing Tuesday Talks. Thank you to our wonderful knowledgeable speakers. We'll bring this one back to go deeper. Uh, over to you, DJ Sofa.